0: We're in Psalm 42. Psalm 42 this morning. Hope you still are there with me this morning as we look to open up this particular psalm this morning. A psalm that is uh, perhaps familiar, but a psalm that I think is very much necessary for the days in which we find ourselves oftentimes. The Psalms are generally considered, I think, to be some of the most beloved pieces of writing in the whole entire Bible. In fact, I think if we did a poll, a straw poll, perhaps you would say that the Psalms are one of your favorite books of the Bible. And I think there's a lot of good reasons for that. We run to them when we are in those days of weariness, those days of struggle. But I often think it's somewhat ironic that the Psalms are so beloved, especially because if you... uh, Or investigate them or study them to any great degree. You would often realize that the Psalms are actually describing moments of very intense heartache and grief. Moses has a couple of Psalms. Asaph, of course, and David. And all of these writers of all the various Psalms are seemingly writing from places of great darkness and sorrow. And the result is this somewhat, we could say, divinely inspired hymn book, if you will, from which you and I were able to, I think, discern or able to somewhat distill our own moments of turmoil. Indeed. I don't think it takes very long if you just flip through the psalms for any length of time. You'll find a psalm, I think, that actually addresses your particular problem or predicament. Those feelings that you have of of anguish and grief and confusion and dismay. They are here in this beloved book. And I say, I think that's why the psalms are so beloved. They are relatable Yeah, I think that's why, I think that's, we we could say that's what answers the irony before. The irony of all these psalms describing heartache is that we sometimes feel in those particular moments the same exact thing. And in fact, I think the reasons why the psalms are often gone to is because the psalmist, whoever that might be, has somehow been able to express what we are perhaps feeling, but we might be ashamed to admit it. (laughs) David especially, if you read the Psalms of David, over and over again, he is freely articulating those deep, dark, down feelings that are in his soul, those those emotions that almost come from his gut. He is expressing those to God, even when those feelings are directed at God himself. When he felt overwhelmed When he felt abandoned, when he felt unheard, when he felt lost, when he felt hurt, when he felt overcome, he let God know. In fact, just take a detour. Go to Psalm 88. Listen to this example of what I'm trying to get at here. In perhaps one of the most devastating psalms of all. This is a psalm here. Notice what the psalmist says. Psalm 88 verse 13, but I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Maybe you haven't felt to that degree, or maybe you have. But I think what I love about the Psalms and whoever the psalmist is, is that they don't bottle that kind of stuff up. They don't keep that stuff in. They are expressing to the Lord Jesus, to God himself, those things that they are struggling with. They are literally pouring out their soul to the God of their salvation, the God of their hope. Psalm 42 is another instance of just that. Another occasion... In which we find the psalmist giving voice, so to speak, to those things which grieve him, those things which are causing him to stumble. Notice Psalm 42, verse 1 again, as he says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God, when I shall come and appear before God. My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Interestingly enough, this psalm is not one that has the prefix a psalm of David. You won't find that in your notes, although uh, if you just read through it again, there are so many themes throughout this psalm that it is very likely one that came from his pen, in, from his life. Many have often suggested that Psalm 42 is just another one of those songs that David composed while he was on the run from his very own son Absalom out of 2 Samuel 15. When in the aftermath you know of all of the the chaos that came about from David's sin with Bathsheba. And then years later what is coming home to Ruth. That bloodshed will never leave David's kingdom. Little did he know perhaps that that bloodshed would come at the hand of his own son. And in 2 Samuel 15 if you read that passage. It's a devastating chapter as the king of Yahweh. The promised chosen king. Of Israel was forced to run for his very life from his own son in air. Er. We can imagine how gut-wrenching that must have been for David. David, the king of Israel, the king who has been given the promise that his line will never leave the throne of Israel, will never be forced out. This will be a kingdom that lasts forever and ever. And yet, very quickly after that covenant, he is suddenly running for his life, a fugitive of his own throne. With his family and his kingdom seemingly going up into smoke. Psalms like this one allow us, I think, to... uh, To put an end to imagining how David might have felt and see how he felt. See what David's mind is going to. See where David is finding solace. And especially in this psalm, but all of the other psalms, I think what David often finds solace in is the communion that he has with the God of glory, the God of heaven, the God who just listens One of the great takeaways that I have from the book of Psalms is the fact that God in glory listens to our puny and pitiful cries when we are weeping at midnight. God is aware and he hears those complaints. He hears those weeps. Those laments. He hears them. He notices them. And he takes care of them. What David expresses here. And Psalm 42 is another example of just this this brutal and graphic description of what he is enduring. Three times he repeats that phrase. Notice verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Verse Number six again, my soul is cast down within me. And at the end, verse 11, why are you cast down, oh my soul? And he is feeling truly downcast and devastated in this moment as uh, from without and from within, he's experiencing untold turmoil. On the outside, as he Gives us a glimpse. There are a number of enemies. Or adversaries as he calls them. Who are taunting him incessantly. With this awful notion that God had forgotten him. Had abandoned him. Notice verse 3. My tears have been my food. Day and night while they say to me all the day long. Where is your God? Notice verse 10. As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries, they taunt me while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? From the outside, he is downcast by this awful, repeated chant of those who would wish to bring David down. And yet, from the inside, he is in just as much turmoil as it seems as the wave after wave after wave of distress just floods his soul. As he says in verse number 7. Deep calls to deep. At the roar of your waterfalls all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. He is in a relentless deluge. A flood of despair. This is David. This is David in this moment, which is just to say that that image that we might have in our mind's eye of a deer peacefully lapping up water in a tranquil little stream is, I think, a little bit inaccurate. We love that verse. As a deer pants for flowing streams, verse 1, so pants my soul for you. But this panting is not gently lapping up water. It's more like heaving. Gasping for something to refresh you, something to slake that thirst, because you are parched, you are famished, you need this stream. The deer is not to be imagined, I think, serenely just trotting up to the riverbank like Bambi, but is actually sprinting to that stream. Where cool waters flow. And I think David is trying to get in our mind's eye. And even in his own mind's eye. That's me. He is desperate for that place where he can find refreshment. Where he can find something to lift up his weary soul. Because truly he is cast down. So what does that look like for David? What does that look like for David in this particular song as he is singing to the Lord? How is his heart and soul and mind refreshed as he endures such days of misery and doubt and grief? Well, three things I want you to notice this morning. The way in which David found refreshment here in this place of being cast down. First, I want you to notice the refreshment of God's people. The refreshment of God's people. Notice verse 4 as David is here singing. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. With glad shouts and songs of praise. A multitude keeping festivals. In response to this sneering question that these enemies have sort of released at him, taunting about where is your God? Where is he? He has left you. He's forgotten you. David calls to mind a very specific image. It's an image of going into the house of God. And in fact, he has this image in mind of him leading the throngs of people, the procession, the assembly of the people of Yahweh. As he says, they're the multitude into the very tabernacle of God himself. And the memory cheers him, it encourages him. Yes, indeed, it refreshes him. As you might know, the kingdom of Israel blossomed mightily under King David. It reached the peak of its powers in many ways, which I think is a direct result of David's sort of determination, and we might even say stubbornness, to bring Yahweh back into the center of life for all of the people of Israel. You might remember also the waning days of King Saul, David's predecessor, were days which were marked by a very steep decline in terms of the ways in which Yahweh was involved with not only the king's life but the people's life. If you remember in Saul's very, uh, very near the end of his days, he is seeking out other sort of enchantresses and magicians to try and find divination. Which is a very clear sort of reminder of the ways in which God's people often fall astray, going elsewhere for wisdom and for guidance and for direction. David, on the other hand, is concentrated on bringing Israel into a right right relationship with the living God, as he says here. The living God who he had experienced so often had lifted him up out of countless pits and problems and disasters. When David, yes, is crowned, he has already had a lifetime of experiences of having God meet his weariness and meet his exhaustion. If you remember, he's been on the run before. Running from the throne as King Saul thought him as a threat, running for his very life, sleeping in caves and sleeping upon rocks and finding refuge in the wildernesses of Judea. David had firsthand experience. Of what it was like for the living God to refresh him in days of darkness and distress and despair. Which is just to say that I think when David becomes king, truly king of Israel, he is bringing the people into a right relationship with God because he's experienced it. He's experienced that mercy and relief that only Jehovah can give, that only the living God can give. That's his testimony as the king and as the leader of God's people. Which I'm sure just made David's David's worship so full of life and animation and energy. And you can think again, this is where his thoughts are drawn here. Notice verse 4 again. These things I remember As I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. With glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. If these words were indeed written during that horrific season of life. When Absalom was trying to overthrow David's seat of power and trying to lead an insurrection on the house of David itself. That means David again is now a fugitive from his own kingdom. Once again, hindered, barred, not allowed to go into that house of the Lord with the people of the Lord. That one place that he finds comfort in, that he finds relief in, and what what keeps him, what keeps him enduring, what keeps him going during such horrific moments, during such harrowing days of misery and anguish. That memory he has. Right there he says. I remember. A memory is burned. Into his mind. Of those amazingly glad. And triumphant singing. Of the people of God. Of the multitude. The chorus of all the people. Who go with him into the same place. And are singing shouts of praise. To the living God. He says I remember that. I'm keeping that in my mind. And indeed, that word remember is just... You know those times where you hear a song in the radio? And you can't get it out of your head no matter what you do. And it starts to get annoying, perhaps even annoying to your spouse. Because you just find yourself singing it. That's David essentially here. He has that song, he has that memory burned into his mind. Of going into that house of God. Going into the tabernacle and singing as he says, glad shouts of praise. What a sight. What an amazing memory and thought to keep in his mind as David is here downcast and depressed. He was uplifted by recalling this scene of going into the sanctuary where all of God's people would unite with this one amazing voice and praise Yahweh above Everything else. And that's his desire. Even as he is in perhaps a place of weariness and wilderness. What is his desire? His thoughts is running back to the assembly. Running back to the congregation. Where God's people come into God's house. Again he says I'm thirsting for that. My soul thirsts for that place where I can commune with the living God. And where is that? It's where the people gather. And I have to wonder, and I'm wondering for even myself, is that our first thought? Think about it. If you are in a place of weariness and misery and dejection, is the church your first thought? Is coming here into this place with the people of God, is that your first source of refreshment and recovery? When days of sorrow persist and they seem to be unending. Is God's house the first place you want to run to and get to? And you can't wait to be there. When we're undergoing seasons of just severe trial and stress. And those come and they go. But when they come, is the church our first option? Sometimes I don't think it is. And maybe it's because the people in church are the ones who are giving us the stress. (laughs) I don't know. But oftentimes I think it's because we come to church and we have an inappropriate view of what happens in church. The church again is just (laughs) a sanctuary for saints instead of what it really is, a hospital for the broken. That's what this is. If you want to continue that metaphor, we are all in some stage of recovery. (laughs) That's why we're here. That's why we have assembled. Not because we have it figured out and because we have everything put together. Precisely because we don't. That's why we're here. That's why we come together. That's why we come and praise the living God. Because we don't have it together. We don't have the pieces of our lives perfectly knit. We don't have all of our ducks in a row. And that's why we come and assemble. Because we are all in that same state of affairs. Same state of crying out to God. God be merciful to me a sinner. God be merciful to me a weary broken hearted sinner. On the road of discouragement. In a valley of the shadow of death. That's perhaps where we find ourselves. And if you look around perhaps you'll find someone else in the same situation. Sometimes I think we think. Or maybe it's just me. I don't know. I'm not going to speak for you. Man, that person, look at them. They got it all put together. I don't want to, I can't sit by them in church because look at them. They got all the verses memorized. Look at their tie. Look at their dress. Look at how put together and neat they are. All of that is just a facade for what is inside of our souls, which is what? A heart that is thirsty for the living God. Oh, my friends, if you don't come to church thirsting for the living God, why are you here? We come to church not because we are filled to the brim with our own spirituality and goodness, but we come to church because we are parched, because we need that overflow of God's love and grace and mercy to fill up our souls. That's why we're here. We are thirsty. We are famished. We are weary. If that's you this morning, maybe this morning is here for you that you can find refreshment in none other than the living God. My friends, nowhere else can you experience that awesome power of God's Spirit refreshing hearts and souls and minds than when God's people gather. That's what makes the church so awesome. Does you have. Weary souls from all different kinds of backgrounds and opinions and beliefs and interpretations and and all those sorts of things and preferences. And what happens? The same spirit fills each and every single one of you this morning. And he's enlivening our faith. He's encouraging us on the roads of weariness and exhaustion and doubt. And he's ministering to each and every single one of your needs. The same spirit does that. And he does that when the word is proclaimed, when it goes forth. Yes, when we assemble as we sung in that song, we are giving the world a foretaste of glory divine. And we are doing the same thing for each and every single one of us that is next to us. We're a congregation of thirsty sinners who come to the well of living water to find refreshment. That's what this place is. And David in the wilderness was remembering that. My friends, when you're in the wilderness, do you remember the refreshment of God's people? Secondly, notice what David says. The refreshment of God's company. Go back to Psalm 42. Notice verse 5. Psalm 42, verse 5. Notice, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mizar. The psalmist says pretty matter-of-factually, as he, we have already noted, three times. And again, in Psalm 43, the very next psalm, he says that same phrase again. My soul is cast down. In modern vernacular, we would probably use the word depressed. That's what David is here confessing to this morning. He is saying, "My I am I'm depressed. He sees his life. Crumbling before his very eyes and he is overcome with all manner of grief and frustration. And as we've already noted, the season of anguish for him feels like a never-ending wave of sorrow. There's no sort of break in that wave. It just keeps mounting and mounting and mounting as he says in verse 7. Deep calls to deep. And to be sure, this is I think what often depression feels like. And in fact, there's been some modern sort of Bible scholars and perhaps uh, sort of medical professionals who have done pre- uh, their, own, their best to sort of diagnose David, if you will, based on what he confesses throughout the scripture. You know, they take modern medical journals and, and try to determine what David is here talking about. I, mean, I don't know if that's entirely accurate to apply all those modern things to what David is here confessing, but regardless... As I see it, his depression very much indeed serves, I think, to give every sort of downcastle ever since a sense of hope and assurance. Because David's been there. He's been in those spots. You know, the psalmist's confession in verse number 7 reminds me of my own experience. And perhaps it reminds me of yours. I don't mean to, and I hope you don't get tired of this testimony, but the testimony of my mom's ordeal in the summer of 2018 is the one that is most burned into my mind. In fact, sometimes I feel, maybe I'm going to date myself. Remember that show Quantum Leap? maybe don't remember the show. He's like a time traveler and he keeps going into different bodies and he's trying to get back to his main body and it, it, that's a really bad analogy. But anyways, in Quantum Leap, he keeps going and time traveling to different spots. And this is going to be a really crazy jump, but sometimes I feel like a quantum leaper. And I could go right back into that moment in 2018. It's so fresh. I can close my eyes and I can think about exactly where I was and exactly how I felt. When I saw uh, my mom and my family sort of crumble over what they were trying to figure out. And we were trying to discern how we were going to move forward because we weren't sure if we were going to get my mom back because of this overwhelming wave of depression had taken over her mind completely. There was so much doubt in that summer. And uncertainty. And I think that's exactly what depression does to you. It clouds everything and it colors everything. Until everything starts to appear to have this black and white or gray hue. You don't see <laughs> Things as they should be. Perhaps you only see them as, they, as you imagine them. Even if what you imagine doesn't ever take place. You cannot help but think of anything else. One writer puts it this way. And I think it's very astute. He says depression. quote, Relies heavily on a paralyzing sense of imminence. What is happening to you in depression is horrible. But it seems to be very much wrapped up in what is about to happen to you. Your thoughts are about this might happen. and You can't think of anything else. And it isolates you. And it takes you to a place where you feel alone. And you feel totally, completely cut off and shut off. You feel like you're on a remote island by yourself. Like a horrible version of Robinson Crusoe. And you're there and no one can reach you. And I think that's what David is alluding to Here. In verse number 6, you notice as he says, from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and M- Mount Mizar, he is crying from all of these cliffs. Do you know where these are? They're very far removed from Jerusalem, let's just say that. He's been on the run from his son Absalom and he's running for his life And now he finds himself in a very remote mountain range on the border of modern-day Lebanon. A region that's remote, a region that's very far removed from anything in the way of home. Which is just to say, as David is here confessing these things to God, is confessing his downcast state, what is he here saying? I feel not only geographically far, I feel spiritually far away from you, Lord Jesus. He's far from home, far from the house of the Lord, which I'm sure made all of those taunts of the enemies feel that much more credible. Yeah, where, where is God? What is he doing? Why is he doing this to his people and to my family? Why is he doing this to the throne that he said would be the throne of David forever? In that place of loneliness, he wasn't sure if God had forgotten him or not. He couldn't be too sure of how to answer that. But notice what he says again. Notice how he's refreshed. Why are you cast down, verse 5, O oh, my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. My salvation in my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you i remember you he says no matter where david had traversed no matter how far david had journeyed away from the place that he could call home what does he say i am remembering you the lord was with him No matter how deep that canyon might have been or how treacherous that cliff. What does he say? The Lord's steadfast love was there. Verse number 8. By the day the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. No matter where he was, God was there. God was with him as far away as he might have felt, as downtrodden as he surely was, despite all that torment, despite all of that turmoil that flooded his soul and his mind and clouded every thought that he might have and clouded every piece of word that he might confess. He found refreshment where? In the presence, in the company of God that never left him. It's exactly, I think, what he's trying to get at in Psalm 139. If you remember that wonderful psalm, and notice what he says here. Psalm 139, verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed and shield, you are there. Are there, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be at night, even the darkness is not day to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. It didn't matter how far David sunk. His God would be there with him. It didn't matter how low David got. God was there. If there's anything that I've learned from experience, and perhaps you have too, and you could testify even to it this morning, is that yes, the same is true for you, brother and sister, this morning. The God of David is the God of today, the God of right now. He's your God who is unafraid to be with you in those places of loneliness and lowness and despair and languishing. And he's a God who ev- forever comes close to those who are weary and downcast. As he says in Psalm 34, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirits. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but what? The Lord delivers him out of them all. God's company never abates when seasons are difficult. When you feel weary, God does not back away. He is not a fair weather friend who is only there when the seasons are bright and sunny and shining. He is there through thick or thin, when rain and snow, when all of the flood of life overwhelms you. That is your God. He keeps company forever. And David in the season of depression found refreshment in the never never failing company of God alone. And that brings me lastly to the last thing that he found refreshment in. The refreshment of God's hope. The refreshment of God's hope. Notice again back in Psalm 42. Notice again verses 5 and 6. Why are you cast down, O my soul, he says. And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And notice verse 11, where he says the same thing. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And notice the next chapter, chapter 43, verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. On three separate occasions, three times, and in fact, some believe that Psalm 42 and 43 were actually one psalm. They should be smashed together, so to speak. Three times he articulates this refrain, he expresses this sort of chorus, this stanza that he keeps going back to. And it us into his mindset, of course, as he is obviously at war with himself. He's wrestling between what he believes and what he's experiencing. Because what he's experiencing is not anything good. It's miserable, it's agonizing, it's grievous. And yet what does he believe? He believes that there's a God who is above it all, who is over it all, master of it all. And he's wrestling. Why are you cast down? Soul, why are you depressed? Why are you so weary? And three times to the same soul, he's talking to himself. How does he find refreshment? Hope in God. Every time he's confessing his vulnerability, his insecurity, his frailty, the idea that he is about to crack, the idea that he is about to lose all faith and hope altogether. He likewise reminds himself through the power of the Spirit, yes, that there is hope to be found in God. Again, this is one of the ways that I have loved to sort of understand the Psalms, is that David is essentially talking to himself. And in here, it's kind of obvious. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Hope in God. He's talking to himself. (laughs) You have a God who can be hoped in. Because what does this God have? And what does this God dispense? Salvation. Deliverance. He had learned. I think even here and perhaps all of David's life, he had learned that hope, true hope, Only blooms in the crater of personal hopelessness. That's where it starts. When we are powerless. In the face of despair and disappointment. That's where God works. Most mightily on us. And that's a hard thing to accept. But the pathway to hope begins with that recognition that we are hopeless in and of ourselves, that we are powerless in and of ourselves, that we who are so desperate for rescue cannot rescue ourselves, even from being cast down. that's not meant to make you feel defeated. I think that's meant to drive you to the hope, the only one, the only hope that can and will rescue, as he says, the God of my salvation. You know, when the Coast Guard, when those divers attempt to rescue someone who is drowning, what do they do? Well, I can tell you what they don't do. They don't stay up in their helicopter and shout at the person how to swim better you got to move your arms like this to get out. No, they don't do that. They dive in with the person. And in fact, sometimes they have to force that person who's drowning to surrender, to give up. And in fact, they teach the divers to in fact defend themselves first. Because oftentimes someone who's drowning, what are they doing? They're thrashing and they're throwing themselves all around. Because they're panicking, and rightly so. It's a nervous and nerve-wracking situation. But the diver, first, what does he have to do? Secure himself and safeguard the person from ruining the whole rescue attempt, bringing both the diver and the one drowning under the water. Rescue only occurs when the one who is drowning surrenders to the one who is attempting the rescue. They can't rescue themselves, they can't bring themselves out of that spot. But when they surrender, when they give in to the rescue already underway, then they are brought to safety. And I think the same is true for you and I in our lives of faith. The same is true, I think, when it comes to the God of our salvation. Namely, that God helps those who cannot help themselves. There's an old tried and true, perhaps, and it's not biblical, but it's a a phrase that I've heard church people say. In fact, I read it in a book once. I think the book was a a loose commentary on Colossians. And in it, the writer said, God helps those who help themselves. I had to stand back and say, no, he doesn't. (laughs) It's the exact opposite of that. God helps those who cannot help themselves. That's precisely who he reaches out and saves. That's precisely who he extends his arm and says, hope in me. That's who he rescues. Therefore, when we are bottoming out and we're coming to the end of ourselves, that's precisely where God wants us to see that hope springs anew. That's where he visits us. That's where he comes to find us. You know, there was one time in that summer, and this is just popping into my head, that summer when, when my mom was going through her ordeal. So in June, she had this horrible event, which devastated our family. A couple of months later, she was released out of the facilities and allowed to go back home with a very strict medis, uh, medicine, regiment of medicine, <laughs> And at first she was very reluctant to have anything sort of, take anything, any sort of um, prescription medication to try and alleviate her situation. And I remember going to her house one time, that I think it was November of that same year. And we went to her house and there were sticky notes all over the house. I mean, that's a little bit of hyperbole, but they were a lot everywhere. Mirrors and cabinet doors and the, ver- and the sticky notes had verses all over the place. Verses that she was trying to remind herself of. I remember sitting with my mom on the corner of the bed, and it was late at night again, and she was trying to study the Bible again. And I remember telling her, Mom, you cannot memorize your Bible out of this. <laughs> you cannot memorize enough scripture to get out of this storm. And in that moment, I think she was very much like a person drowning. She was thrashing. She was trying to save herself. And it was only when she completely gave in and gave up her ability to overcome this horrible cloud that had clouded her mind and her soul that that's when things started to progress And I go back to that often because it's not only, I think, a paradigm for those who are likewise in depression, but I also think it's a paradigm for ourselves and our sin. We cannot rescue ourselves from being downcast. There is only one who can do that, and his name is the Holy One of Israel, God himself, the living God, Jehovah, who ministers to us. Who speaks peace to us and grace to us in times of need and speaks hope to us in all of our days of horror and frustration. You see, what makes the gospel so powerful is that it gives us a hope, a real, honest, genuine hope, a hope that is not nebulous, that is not just a force like in Star Wars where you just have to believe that it's there. It's a hope that has a face. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter calls this our living hope. The hope that you have, that you will be delivered out of whatever storm or whatever season of weariness that you're in right now, is a hope that has blood in his veins and breath in his lungs. And this hope is none other than the Lord Jesus and he is in glory right now in this very moment. Forever serving as a reminder that yes, all those who are weary and heavy laden, they find refreshment in me, Jesus says. They find refreshment in me, the one who is the embodiment of hope incarnate. That's who Christ is. He strengthens our weariness. He refreshes our parched souls. And he comes alongside those who are downcast and he raises them up again. This, my friend, is the gospel. It's the gospel for sinners and sufferers like you and like me. If you are weary, if you are thirsty, find refreshment in this Lord Jesus this morning. Let us bow and close our eyes in a word of prayer.